Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has a wide variety of sports content with graphics, reels, highlights, and more. So before this episode begins, what I want you guys to do is go ahead, pull out your phone, and follow the Instagram page at DLSportsCom. That's at DLSportsCom. Thanks, guys, and enjoy the show. On today's episode of On the DL Podcast, we have editor and writer at For the Win Sports, Charles Curtis. We discuss the upcoming fantasy football season, so if anyone has a draft coming up in the next few days, or maybe it's even tonight while you're listening to this episode, you want to give it a listen. We also went over the preseason AP Top 25 poll that came out for college football, so I'm going to give my thoughts on the AP Top 10, who do I think is too high, who do I think is too low, all that good stuff. I'm also going to debate whether I think the Miami Dolphins and Tua Tagovailoa will meet their over-under mark of 8.5 wins this season. And finally, we're going to wrap up the show with an update on the Deshaun Watson suspension and what that means for the NFL. As always, we have a lot to get into, so let's not waste any time and get things started. Welcome to episode number eight of On The Deal podcast, and college football is back. The preseason AP Top 25 was released this week, and there was no surprise at who would be number one. It is the Alabama Crimson Tide. This marks the second consecutive year that the Crimson Tide in Alabama are number one in the preseason poll, and it is their fifth time in seven years that they are preseason number one. Since we went into depth about Alabama's team on the last episode, we aren't going to discuss them very much. We're going to go over the other teams a lot more, but we will be looking into all the ins and outs of the top 10 and what that means for their rankings for all those teams. And I know there's 25 teams that you can look on for this list, but as we know in college football, the top 10 to 15 teams are really the only relevant teams in terms of making it to the college football playoff in today's college football era. This year, unfortunately, it seems more lopsided and distant than usual in terms of it being a three to four team race to win the national title. When you think about those three to four teams, usually teams that come to mind are you know Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Clemson. I really think it's going to be a two-team race this year with the top two teams in this poll with Alabama and Ohio State. But anyways, here's the top 10. Number one, we have Alabama. Number two is Ohio State. Third, we have Georgia. Fourth, Clemson. At the five slot, we have Notre Dame. Six is A&M. Seven, Utah. Eight, Michigan. Nine, Oklahoma. And ten, to wrap it up, we have Baylor. Like I said, let's skip over Alabama because I hit everything I wanted to say last week. But again, I believe this Alabama team is going to be outstanding. And I think they're going to go on to win their 19th national title when this season comes to a close. So Ohio State at two. I think Ohio State is going to be fantastic this year. We know that they have their stud QB in C.J. Stroud, who is currently the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. In addition to Stroud, they have an elite offense around him with receiver Jackson Smith and Jigba and running back Travion Henderson. Smith and Jigba and Stroud are going to be one of the best duos in the game, if not the best duo in the game. Remember the Rose Bowl from last year when Ohio State played Utah? Smith and Jigba broke the Ohio State record for most catches in a game with 15 and receiving yards with 347. Those numbers are just video game-like, and he also, I think, has the record for most receptions in school history. That was one of the best games of the season last year, hands down, if not the best one. Ohio State was one of the best teams in the country last year and honestly should have been on their way to the college football playoff before their loss at Michigan. I know they did lose to Oregon earlier on in the season, but they are still in the race for the CFP. But still, they had 11 wins on the year. They won a New Year's Six Bowl, won the Rose Bowl, and their victory over Utah. Their defense is what harped them last season. They gave up 22.8 points per game last year, which is subpar for them. Their defensive unit has gotten older. They had a younger core around them on the defensive side of the ball last year. So I see them just developing and stepping up as veterans this year. Especially at the linebacker and corner slots, it looks like they have veteran leadership that will help them develop into just an overall more complete defensive unit. 
they have a big year ahead of them, and I think Ryan Day is going to look for a national title at hand. And it looks like, like we said, we're on an inevitable crash course for Alabama and Ohio State in the championship game and Inglewood this year. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but that's just the way I think it's going to go. That's the way I see it. That's a lot of way a lot of other media members out there see it. But don't worry, we're still going to enjoy some football. Georgia at three, I think makes sense and is probably correct. But as we know, they lost tons of pieces from last year's championship team. Their defense is going to have the most question marks with almost everyone from that unit going to the NFL. They lost wide receiver Jermaine Burton to Alabama, along with James Cook to the NFL. However, they still have Stetson Bennett, who is about to be in his sixth year in college. I don't know how he's still playing or what his eligibility status is, but oh well, he's back. And he's shown to be a solidified quarterback in the SEC. They also have Brock Bowers, who I think is going to be Georgia's best offensive player. And he was one of their best offensive players probably last season. This kid is NFL ready even after his freshman year. And I think he's going to have an absolute monster season. It's Georgia. They're one of the big schools. So, you know, it's just one of those elite programs. And with that, players are going to rise through recruitment when you're talking about filling those holes, who's going to step up, who's going to be the next guy to fill the slots that have departed for the NFL. Also with Georgia, it's a huge running back school, so running backs are going to emerge along with those holes that are within their defense, like I just mentioned. It's going to take a little bit of time, and I think Georgia is going to be a good team this year, but I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs. I could see them losing a tough game in the regular season, and then they'll play Bama at some point. So probably a two-loss season and a New Year's Six Bowl, which is still a terrific season for Kirby Smart and the Georgia Bulldogs. Their first game against Bo Nix and the Oregon Ducks I think will be hard for them. That's not an easy first task. Oregon is projected to finish third in the Pac-12 this year. They always have flair and firepower on their team, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And Bo Nix is reunited with his offensive coordinator from Auburn. The line for that game, I think, is too high. It's 17.5, so I'd take Oregon plus money there for sure. I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think it's going to be. We'll see how Kirby Smart develops his team. It'll be an adjustment, but they'll still be one of the better teams in the country. Clemson and Notre Dame at 4-5 and five, I think are way too high. I'm not sure why either of those teams are that high with all due respect. I think Dabo is a great coach, and I think Marcus Freeman is also a terrific coach and has been doing phenomenal things at Notre Dame so far. But they aren't four and five. And Clemson's quarterback, DJ, you know, he's shown that he's not he has he hasn't stepped up for them enough. He's not the quarterback that everyone thought he was gonna be. The only thing that's really saving Clemson is that they play in the ACC. And I mean this with love because I'm originally from North Carolina. So I grew up an ACC football and basketball fan. The ACC football-wise is a joke right now. If you look at Clemson's schedule, the hardest game is at Notre Dame. And then before that, it's only against North Carolina State, which they play at home. And North Carolina State is not a a top 15 team in the NCAA. I know they're 13th coming into the preseason rankings, but they are not a top 15 team. They'll have to go undefeated, Clemson will throughout the year in order to have a shot at the playoff. As for Notre Dame, their situation isn't necessarily sound in going undefeated because they play a lot tougher of a schedule than Clemson does. And if you win your first game against Ohio State and then beat Clemson and then beat USC all in the same season, I feel like those are three top 15 wins that you can bank on and still lose a game and maybe still even get in. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think Ohio State... Is going to pump the brakes off Notre Dame in the season opener. Ohio State, just so you know, is favored by 16 points. 16 points against them, and they're two top five teams. That just shows you the distance this year between the two slot and the five slot. You would think the line would be somewhere around like eight and a half, maybe seven, maybe a touchdown, but it's 16. That's more than a two-score game. I don't think we're going to be discussing Clemson or Notre Dame come December. I think it's going to be a lot like last season in my eyes. Let's move on to the six slot. You see Texas A&M at six in this poll. Some people have wanted them higher, and I think A&M is an interesting team because all those recruiting classes that they've started to build up, you wonder when it's all going to come together for them. You know, When are they going to make that next step and become an 11-win team or maybe even more instead of going eight and four every year, like they've been training towards 
over the last two or three years. Even if they do go eight and four again, they'll hold on to Jimbo because, you know, these classes have to prove eventually the ones that he's recruited that they can get this championship for their fan base. I think this year they're going to go eight and four again, maybe nine and three. I think they'll lose to Arkansas, Alabama, and then they'll probably drop one towards the end of the year, maybe like an LSU on the road, or I think they play LSU at home, actually, maybe Auburn on the road. They always drop one game that they shouldn't lose. So we'll see what happens with Texas A&M. As we know, we're looking forward to that game on October 8th in Tuscaloosa. That's going to be a big one. It's just going to take time, I think, for Jimbo to turn that program into an eight-win team all the way to a 12-plus win team. That's a big jump to make, and hopefully for Texas A&M fans, you could see those classes start to develop. Utah is at seven. They're projected to win the Pac-12 this season, and they've been putting together some very good, solid seasons recently. They lost to Ohio State in the Rose Bowl last season, like I just mentioned, but I don't think they'll win the Pac-12. I think the Trojans of USC have entered the building. I think they will take the crown of the best West Coast team like the old days. I believe in the Lincoln-Riley hype, along with the Caleb Williams hype from Oklahoma, followed his coach, Lincoln-Riley. He's a Heisman candidate preseason, but you never know, honestly. The Pac-12 and the Big 12, those conferences can really surprise you at times, especially the Pac-12 throughout the season. But I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to predict that the Trojans are going to be in the college football playoff when the season is over. Think about it. If they go undefeated with wins over Utah and UCLA, and then Utah again, or maybe Oregon again in the Pac-12 championship game, you can put them in there depending how other teams pan out. Think about Notre Dame, for instance. If those two teams are have similar resumes at the end of the year, if they go undefeated up until the end of the year, and then USC and Notre Dame would be neck and neck for one of those last spots in the playoff, and they play each other the last game of the regular season, that would be really fun to see. It would be in LA. That atmosphere would be crazy. One game for the last spot in the playoff. To round it out, we have Michigan at 8, Oklahoma at 9, and Baylor at 10. I think that OU should be higher on this list. I really love how they brought in Brett Venables, and they have a new quarterback in Dylan Gabriel from UCF, who is apparently an electric talent. I haven't seen a lot of his play, especially because he played at UCF, so I didn't get to watch many of their games. But he could win the Heisman as well. That's a name that has been thrown out there in the Heisman odds. Oklahoma puts good seasons together, and I think they'll win the Big 12 again this year too. The thing about Lincoln Riley leaving is that he was such a great offensive-minded coach. But with Venables, you switch up the dynamic with a defensive-minded coach because he was the D.C. at Clemson. In the Big 12, with all those shootouts and high-scoring games, a strong defensive-minded coach might be just what you need to get over that hump and become a better team overall, especially when you get to bowl games the college football playoff, that's always the knock that people have against the Big 12 and the Pac-12 for that matter. The defense of the SEC teams just swallow their offensive firepower. And if you could bring that energy back and also develop your offensive game, that's going to give you a much better chance, especially when you know you're going to be heading to the SEC very soon. So that's a good change of schemes and dynamic of your team before you venture off into the best conference in America. So that's the top 10. If I have to give my final projections, this is going to be the college football playoff when it's all said and done. Alabama 1, Ohio State 2, Oklahoma 3, and USC 4. And then my final is going to be Alabama and Ohio State, and Alabama is going to bring it home. All right, guys, now we're going to head into our interview talking all things fantasy football with Charles Curtis. This interview was a lot of fun, and I'm so excited for fantasy football to start up again. So without further delay, here's Charles Curtis. All right, guys, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is the assistant managing editor at For the Win out of the USA Today Network. It is Charles Curtis. Charles, thank you for joining the show. I'm really excited about this fantasy football season. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of football fans out there will say that once the fantasy draft commences, that's when you know the season is literally just around the corner. But before we get into any fantasy football talk, 
I noticed on your bio on the For the Win website, there's an interesting fact that I need some elaboration on. Uh, it says that you once dropped an easy foul ball at Shea Stadium and was booed by 35,000 angry Mets fans, and you haven't recovered since that moment. So please tell me more about this uh, instance first before we begin. Can, can confirm, Sam, this actually happened to me. Yes, uh, lifelong Mets fan, grew up in New York City. Uh, Chase Stadium, it was, I want to say it was in the 2000s, early 2000s. I was in college at that point, went to a game with my dad, and I sat down kind of the, the left field line, and I was one of those people, and I, I've stopped doing it, but I was one of those people who used to bring my glove to games, and there was a foul ball from a lefty, so it curves sort of toward the left field foul ball stands. Um, foul area stands, I should say. And I literally, all I had to do was take a step out of my seat, make a like a, another step forward and a left. And I was in the aisle at, at Shea Stadium's field level. And literally the ball would be right there. And it was perfect. And it was, it was head to my glove. And I don't think people realize like a major league foul ball is, it moves really quicker than it looks. You know, sometimes you see it like, you know, this is a, almost like a, a curving line drive. And I put my, 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 a glove up and I missed the rule that everybody, the first rule you learn about catching a ball, which is keep your eye on it. I took my eyes off it and I went off and I'll make a sound the top of my glove and <laughs> behind me. And I turned, I looked to see where it went. It went somewhere. Somebody got it. And I turned around and I looked up and the whole stadium was booing me at the same time as they should, right? Like we've all done that at a, a baseball game, you know, easy foul ball missed it. Yeah. And uh, New Yorkers are great. They, everybody stopped by my seat and said, Oh, we're going to send you down kid or like, Oh, your glove has a hole in it. It was, you know, great moments in, in sports history for, for me at least. Oh, that's a double-edged sword. Cause that kind of was your 15 seconds of fame there, but not for a good reason. Nope. <laughs> well, thank you for clearing that up. That was a interesting fact I saw on your bio there. Well, let's get into the fantasy football schematics and the draft. Now uh, we're going to start out with uh, who do you think, your first pick is in this draft. You know, you can really flip a coin here. For most people, it's Jonathan Taylor, a unanimous decision that JT is going to be the guy, the number one overall pick for the Colts. But I can also get behind the argument of Derrick Henry for the Titans. Obviously, he's a ball-dominant uh, force to be reckoned with. They always feed him the football. So who are you going to pick with your first pick in this draft? And do you think that Jonathan Taylor is the undisputed best pick? I think he is. I think it's Taylor or Bust because every single player behind him, I can ask a good question about. And Taylor is the player. While I, I think that getting Matt Ryan with the Colts is actually going to balance out the offense a little more, in that you know they have a young guy who's a terrific ball carrier. They don't want to do too much to you know have him carry too much of a load like the way that Derek Henry carries or has carried the load for the Titans. I see it as an asset, right? as long as Matt Ryan is halfway better than what Carson Wentz was last year, like that will open things up a little bit more for Jonathan Taylor. And I think while he doesn't repeat necessarily what he did last year, he's the most consistent running back three down, you know, guy. I know Nyan Hines is, is there, but still I'm thinking about like a guy who you can depend on lean on uh, to, you know, be there in the red zone too. So I think when you're thinking about the first pick, you want the most consistent the most likely outcome guy, and that's that's Jonathan Taylor, and you kind of know what you're going to expect out of him, barring injury. Yeah, that's a good point that you made, and you can. I brought up Derrick Henry because I've been thinking in my mind, like back and forth, like if I have the number one pick, what am I going to value more? I'm going to value like Derrick Henry, especially with the absence of AJ Brown and Julio Jones. They still brought in Robert Woods, and they drafted Traylon Burks, but. It's really, you know, Mike Vabrell has really just emphasized always that I'm going to give the ball to Derek. And we know he's coming off an injury. I don't know if that's going to harp anything or if he's going to come back strong. But do you think that the absence of those receivers and more of a focus on Henry is more valuable than, you know, the addition of Matt Ryan and the, their terrific O-line that they have in Indianapolis? You could make the argument that Derrick Henry is going to have a big season again because he was on his way to having a monster season last year. I've just never been a Derrick Henry guy in fantasy for whatever reason. That has cost me probably championships somewhere along the lines, but worry about his foot coming back. You know, uh, we're talking about somebody who's had, you know, uh, wear and tear uh, over the years, you know, as he's run the ball a ton. He's probably, a, you know, he is a top 
five pick probably when you're thinking about uh, your league. I worry about him not catching as many passes uh, and all that, but the, I, I think the thinking there is right that Vrabel is probably going to just say, here, here's the ball, Derek Henry, just take the ball, you know, like, and, and become the centerpiece of the offense where Ryan Tannehill might bounce back. Even with a lack of receivers, I do love Robert Woods this year, sort of a late pick kind of guy. Um, but I think that that will bring the bounce back to that offense where Tannehill will have a little bit more time to, to throw. If Derek Henry takes a step back this year, at least you, you can sort of like carry the knowledge. Like, look, I picked a guy who has always been consistently good in his career. And that's, that's all you can kind of want out of your first pick. Somebody who, again, we're thinking about a range of outcomes. The range of outcomes is Derek Henry still maybe scores 10 touchdowns. Maybe he has less yardage. I don't know. Doesn't catch as many passes. I, he's never been a you know huge pass catcher is what I mean. Um, so when you think about that, it's like, all right, well, you know, the, possible outcome is that the foot injury is behind him and then he runs all over the league again yeah and I think that's you know his he is such a strong like human being in general like his presence so I think that I'm not really in my opinion I'm not really worried about the injury coming off um I don't think he's gonna harp or be be harmed with his production at all switching topics here where do you think is the best ideal spot to be in the drafting order? Or do you think that really doesn't make a difference in anything within your fantasy draft? It's a great question. Cause I tend to not want the first overall pick and the pressure that comes with it. And like, you know, or, or, or the kind of the top three picks sometimes I, it sort of depends on the year for me. Um, I try to just roll with it. Right. Like I'm also in some off, uh, sorry, salary cap problems these days, which we should salary cap leagues. Um, where, you know, you're, it doesn't matter where you pick, you, you're just, you know, bidding money. So I think that I, I tend to like going toward the latter half of the draft because then the decision's sort of out of my hands, right? Like, oh, well, I didn't get to pick Najee Harris because he's already been picked. Oh, well, right. Like I can't control that. So I kind of like the pressure coming off where you're not in that spot where it's like the fourth overall pick where, oh man, now I've got a decision to make. Do I take Austin Eckler? Do I take Henry? Do I take Nadia Harris? Whatever it might be. So I kind of prefer the latter half of the draft. Also, like I like the kind of the either back-to-back or close to back-to-back picks because then I get to kind of control my own fate in a way, right? Like, because that second pick, let's say you're the 12th pick in a 12-team league and, and you have 12 and 13, right? Like I know that that 13th, the 13th pick of the first pick of the second round is like a place where, all right, I know I'm not going to be picking for another while. So I have to kind of think about it this way. This is the pick that I have to make. I can reach for a guy because that guy's probably not going to be there in a while. So I feel like there's more control that way. Great question though. Cause I've never thought about it. Like, what do I prefer? Yeah. And I think a lot of people out there will say like, I don't want the pressure with the first pick, but I also don't want to be the 12 slot. So like, I know a lot of people that are, that say, you know, I like the third to fourth pick. I think that's the best place to be. I preferably, like you said, I would like to be in the latter half around like seven to eight area. And that kind of transitions into what I wanted to talk about next, like safe selections versus biggest gambles. Like say you have the seventh pick in this draft, you're going to get a guy like Joe Mixon or Alvin Kamara, who I think are like safe guys to bank on and say, you know, I didn't get. Um, I didn't take a risk on Christian McCaffrey and that could be an upside, but that's also one of the biggest gambles that you're going to take in the draft as a whole. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you say those two guys, those are, I, I would say Mixon is a little bit more consistent. I feel like heading into this year and Kamara, you know, I don't know what's the Saints offense, kind of confusing, but you kind of know that, um, you know, that the, you know, you know, that the, the Saints are going to run the ball and they're going to, throw the ball to, to Kamara a lot. I, in that spot, am really thinking hard about wide receiver at that point, right? Like the top six running backs are possibly gone by then. If one drops you, great. But my feeling generally is like, okay, that's where I'm starting to think about a really consistent, you talk about safe picks. Like if Justin Jefferson is there, heck yeah. Why not take this top wide receiver who's going to get fed all day long? And, and you know, wide receiver is one of those positions that it's deep. So you don't necessarily have to force yourself to do that, but just imagine like a world where you have Justin Jefferson and you don't have to worry about him or uh, Jamar Chase having an explosive year, despite the fact that he had already an explosive year as a rookie, right? Like what's his ceiling now um, in that offense? So I'm thinking wide receiver there. I'm, I'll tell you, I'm not an early tight end guy, but like, it, you know, I think 
you know, end of the first round, beginning of the second, if you're one of those people who's like, yeah, I, I would love one of the top diamonds. Sure. Get Travis Kelsey. No Tyree Kill is here. But yeah, wise, I think receiver there. I think, you know, I have some questions about Kamara and, and, and uh, uh, who else did you say? Uh, it was Mixon. Mixon, right. I'm fine with those guys. But like, yeah, I, if I'm getting Kamara at the end of the first round, if he's still there, like that's a pretty good get. Yeah, and so let's say that you are in that like seven to ten range, and you're battling that, you know, that safe selection, or say, you know, within the first couple rounds, maybe you have a higher pick. Who and let's keep this within like the first one to three rounds here because this really correlates to this debate. Who are some, you know, safe selections that you feel really good about versus biggest gambles that you personally would like to take, or maybe you don't like? Yeah, you know, um, like I said, I mean, in the first round, if, if, if toward the end of that first round, if you're like uh, Chase or Jefferson, I'm totally in. I think Najee Harris has a great year. Um, I I have questions about Devonta Adams um, simply because new offense, you know, rejoining his buddy Derek Carr, who played in college with. But like, are we really thinking that he's going to repeat what he's done with Aaron Rodgers? Like, I'm not totally sure. I'm I'm probably there. I'm like. 85% there, but there's that 15% that's really like, I may just want to stay away because maybe the volume isn't there like it was in Green Bay. The quality might be down a little bit. He still made up, might end up, you know, with 90 catches, 100 catches, you know, but again, that offense is like, you know, got Hunter Renfro there. You got Darren Waller there. It's like, eh, there, there's some risk there. A guy who I'm like totally off of is, is Tyreek Hill. I can't do it. I just, I, you know, there are other people who are going to say, you know, They've got Mike McDaniel, who's going to be, you know, designing plays around Tyreek Hill. I can't do it. I just can't. Like, I, I keep looking at his, his ADP in various, you know, forms, and I keep going, can't do it there, can't do it there, can't do it there. I just, the idea of, I think Tua Tagovailoa gets a, a bad rap. I think actually Tua is actually a pretty good pick where he is because I think he's, he's getting picked late. But I, I just, there's this feeling like Tyreek Hill is not with uh, Patrick Mahomes. And we've spent the offseason with, like, these videos of, like, Oh, look, Terry Hill is catching a 50-yard pass from two attack. No, like, come on. We're, this is not a real game action. Like, let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. So that's a guy who I'm, like, really risky about or feeling risky about. Javante Williams, I get why the hype is there, but Melvin Gordon scored, what, 10 touchdowns last year, and Melvin Gordon is still there. And I know Melvin Gordon just said the other day, like, oh, Javante's getting, you know, RB1 carries in Denver. But realistically, like, Melvin Gordon's still there, right? Until Melvin Gordon gets injured or, you know, is, is really tuned up. And they're not going to do that um, because Melvin Gordon is consistent. And he's even at, at his age for running back. Um, so that's a guy I'm like, I'm not drafting him too high. I worry about that value that you're not getting in the second round. Um, guys that I like, I mean, <sighs> T. Higgins. I, I love the value on T. Higgins, right? Second guy in the in, in the offense, and I know that Jamar Chase is probably going to take you know a, a sizable chunk of, uh, of of the work there. But I really like T Higgins this year, just as like in, in a good offense, you want everybody, right? Like it's not just like he's going to be um, an afterthought for Joe Burrow. The other guy I like is Michael Pittman. I think Michael Pittman's had a tremendous camp, and you know year three, and you know uh, he's is it year three for him or year four, but whatever it is, right? Like Pittman is. The number one guy has got Matt Ryan thrown him. I, I love him this year, and I think he's undervalued. Yeah, I, I really like what you brought up about Tyree Kill. Obviously, the ones that come to mind when you're talking about biggest gambles are guys like Christian McCaffrey, Dalvin Cook. And yeah. I agree with you with the Tyreek um, opinion you have on him. And I think a lot of that is going to fall on to Attack of Iloa. I think, like you said, he does have good value at his spot. I think I have him around 14 for quarterbacks. But I just think that the pressure is going to fall on him. And it really is just all about Tua's production. I think another uh, wide receiver that I don't think is going to pan out is CD lamb. Um, I think that CD lamb, I don't know if he's going to be able to handle that wide receiver one position with double teams in the open field, especially with the absence of, you know, last year he had Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, other receivers around the field that were being compromised and he had more freedom to get receptions, get open. So I'm not very high on C.D. Lamb. I think that some receivers that are safe guys are guys like Mike Evans, especially with the absence of Chris Godwin early in the year. 
I also like Keenan Allen, even though I, I know that um, Mike Williams will probably get some a, a majority more, more more targets this year. Not the majority. Keenan Allen is the number one guy, but he just signed a extension and he had some good production last year for the Chargers. You know, it's interesting about Keenan Allen because I've gone back and forth about him and Mike Williams about a dozen times already, and I haven't even reached my drafts yet. Um, I I think that Keenan Allen is consistent in terms of a PPR league. Like, you, you know you're probably going to get 90 yards, uh, 90 receptions out of him at least if he stays healthy. Um, and, you know, he's got one of the best quarterbacks in the league, Justin Herbert, thrown to him. So I have my doubts only about – yardage so if you're not in a ppr league like that might give you a little bit of pause and maybe red zone wise like you might be nervous about that because i saw some of that last year where mike williams was kind of taking over uh, they have a, a other receivers on the depth chart who are you know kind of uh you know kind of playing a role so i'm i have my doubts about keenan allen just like slightly but like in a ppr league like totally fine like just go get him you know what you're gonna get what you see what with what you get Mike Williams, I have no clue. I honestly, like, he's good. He's bad. He's not getting the ball. He is getting the ball. I think there's sort of a range of outcomes. I, I, I have to see if he's a top 20 receiver at the end of this year. I don't think he's a top 10 receiver. I think that balls get spread around a little bit. So that's sort of my take. I, I wouldn't draft him too high. Um, my doubts about him, he was not, he was like Crypt Knight for me last year. This year, I'm like, oh, okay, I can see him. You know, if he falls, I might, might take, a, take a look at him. Yeah, I had Mike Williams last year, and when I took him in the draft, everyone looked at me like, ooh, that's a good pick. I think I got him in like the fifth or sixth round, kind of late there. And he, man, he was the most inconsistent player I have noticed in fantasy in a long time. There are times when he would get me 45 points, and then the next week he would get me four. And I would always debate like, oh, am I going to put him on the bench because I had other good receivers on my team. I would always find him on my bench and those would be the games when he would just go off for so many yeah. points. So um, Charles, who are some sleepers that you like in this year's draft? Oh God, do you have 20 minutes? I could go through a lot of them. No, I, um, I have a few guys that I really like this year as, as far as sleepers. I mean, I don't know if you count Cortland Sutton as a, as a sleeper, but like, I think he's going to break into the top 20 in, in terms of, um, you know, as a receiver. Guy has Russell Wilson throwing to him. That's huge. I, I kind of love that uh, that kind of player. I mean, Gabriel Davis is being talked about by everybody, and it's kind of hilarious because I think there's a point where he'll become overvalued. But if we're counting him, he's not really a sleeper, but he's a guy who I like. I, I'm all in. I don't care. You know, Rashad Bateman, another receiver who I'm like, why isn't this guy being drafted much higher? I mean, we know Lamar Jackson's going to run first. The 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 you know, or at least the offense is going to run first. And Lamar Jackson's going to run a lot. Um, but he did throw the ball quite a bit to, to Hollywood Brown. And, you know, even with a great tight end there, this is a guy who's probably going to catch a bunch of passes. So I'm, I'm kind of all in on him. Um, we're talking like sleepers. I think Trey Lance is going to have a big year. I really do. I think um, year two in that offense with Kyle Shanahan, like I'm, I'm high on him. Um, I was a Ken Walker guy until he got injured, but I, think that you know you could still get him for a lot of value and i'm i'm frankly i'm in on on uh the packers receiver uh dupes uh i I'm, i haven't said his name out loud is it is it he's terrific like the fact that like aaron Rodgers is talking him up like i'm in I, I, i'm sold you're gonna get him late that's fine with me and then um you know what else would i say damien pierce from the from the houston texans like a guy who's being talked about in camp another like people shy away from houston texans and uh, you know, but like a, a young running back in an offense where there's nothing to lose. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? You might catch a bunch of passes out of the backfield. Why not? Yeah, there's a ton of sleepers that you can go through, but I'm really intrigued about this rookie class that was drafted and everybody brings up names like Drake London, Brees Hall, guys of that nature. Who do you think rookie wise is going to have the most production for fantasy? I think probably London, as long as he's healthy, might end up being the best in this class. I mean, I think Brees Hall is a great addition for the Jets and another one who's sort of like, he's got three down potential. I just worry, like, is Michael Carter going to take some of that off? You know, like, I don't know. Um, but I think London's a great pick. I think uh, for the for the, uh, for the the Saints, like, I thought that was a great pick. Chris Olave out uh, of Ohio State, right? Yeah, like, I was like, all right, that's a guy who I'm intrigued by. 
I liked the second receiver behind a guy like Michael Thomas who's going to get more volume. I don't know how much volume Michael Thomas gets this year, but my point is, you know, you, you get the second receiver who's a young guy. I'm in for that. So, yeah, those are kind of the, the rookies that I'm looking at. Um, uh, and, I, like, George Perkins has, has completely turned in, uh, in in Pittsburgh, and I'm loving that. Like, it's funny. I had a moment in the, in the, in the preseason where I was like, he's going to end up being nothing because the, the, who's throwing the, the ball to him? Um, and I said, uh, I just said, Perkins, George Pickens, excuse me. Um, you know, I, I had this moment where I was like, who's throwing him the ball? Like, are we really going to, you know, like overrate this guy because he has Trubisky or Kenny Pickett throwing the ball? Like, I was like, eh. And then I watched some of the camp stuff and the preseason stuff, and I was like, I'm turning it around. Like, actually, like, this offense is actually looking pretty good. Um, and as long as, like, somebody can get him the ball vaguely, and I think Mitchell Trubisky can do that. Okay. I'm sold. Um, as a late pick, very late pick. Um, the, the name, you know, I think – Name is climbing up the charts, so you may not be able to get tons of value for him, but I'm in. Yeah, I'm also in on George Pickens. And uh, staying on the topic of wide receivers, uh, in today's league, with the rise and the development of receivers in the NFL today, a lot of people are starting to use wide receiver-heavy rosters, and they find success in fantasy because I think you alluded to this earlier. That position is so deep in the game today. So do you value a, a wide receiver-heavy roster more than – it's in like an original scheme of going running back heavy. It, it's a, that's a tricky question to answer, right? Cause like there's PPR leagues, there's like different wrinkles, but I'll say generally my philosophy has been, I want to try to get one good running back in the first few rounds, right? Just one guy. Heck it could be Aaron Jones, right? I'll let's use an example like that, where if that's my, if I, if I've ended up with Justin Jefferson in the first round and I end up with Aaron Jones as my RB one, I'll have it great. You know, this I'm, I'm sort of buying into this idea that there's like a dead zone in drafts. I've read a lot of, of that stuff and, you know, sort of rounds like five through eight, where you're kind of like everybody in there just stinks. And you just, you're just kind of throwing a dart and you're trying to see what happens. I'm generally of the mind that I want to do one good running back and then get a bunch of dartboard throws right after that, because you know, during the season, you're going to be picking up, all the running backs are trying to pick up all the running backs who are injury replacements, who are emerging guys, who are, you know, young guys who might be in a timeshare and could emerge, you know? And so I feel like receiver is consistent. Um, I'm probably going to balance it. I would say I'm like 50, 50, where like in some leagues, I'll end up with uh, a running back, in my flex spot to start the year. And in some leagues, mainly PPR leagues, I'm going to end up with a wide receiver in the flex spot. So that gives you what, like, it depends on if you have, two starting receivers or three. I'm usually in leagues of three starting receivers. So in that case, I sort of like bump up wide receiver value. I try to get three top 30 guys and then a flex would be like a good running back. So I'm, it sort of depends, but I feel like I'm still of the philosophy where I want to, you know, late pick should be like mostly running backs, a wide receiver here and there. But like, if you have consistency at, at your top three receivers, you're fine. You know, so that's sort of my philosophy where like late rounds, it's all running backs that I'm trying to throw darts at. Yeah, I think last year I had a, to start, I had a mix of a 50-50, like you said, but I eventually started making trades and found myself with a wide receiver heavy team. And I found success because I was led by two guys, which were Debo Samuel and Jamar Chase. And that led me all the way to the championship game after starting like one and four on the year. So I think you can really go either way. I think it just really is an interesting concept. But another important or, I guess, interesting thing to think about is when you're drafting a roster, how important is a quarterback on a roster at the end of the day? I think a lot of times as someone who might not be the most into fantasy football that much, you think that the quarterback slot might be one of the most important positions. But honestly, as long as you have a guy like, I don't know, Kirk Cousins on your team and the rest of your roster is – um, pretty sound, you're going to end up being fine. So how important is that slot to you in your mind? Not at all. That's my, that's, I just wrote this like right before I, um, right before I signed on with you, uh, is like four reasons why I shouldn't pick Josh Allen or any of those guys. Um, so I'm all about, um, I'm all about the idea that you don't need a top quarterback. I would rather have Jalen Hurts or Dak Prescott or Kirk Cousins, like any of those guys. And I'll pick like an upside kind of 
uh, backup quarterback, right? Um, I'll take Trevor Lawrence or Tua Tagovailoa, and whoever it might be as a backup, as long as it doesn't interfere with the, the bye week that my starter has. I don't see any reason why you should waste an early pick on a, a quarterback when quarterback one versus quarterback 10, the, the difference is like, what, five, six points a game? Like, that's it's not a huge enough difference for me to sort of buy in. I will say that I'm sort of leaning back toward, you know, and this is something that's happening everywhere. Everybody's picking guys who have legs, right? Who are using their legs to, to make plays happen. And I think that's important, right? Like Tom Brady, you know, I don't know if he's going to lead the league in yards or uh, touchdowns again. So I'm sort of like, nah, you know, about that. Uh, I'm sort of like, I, I don't think he's going to do that. You might end up with a top 10 year from Tom Brady, but you know, with a fluctuation of, of quarterbacks year to year, yeah, I probably want to get Jalen Hurts and I probably want to get Lamar Jackson or whoever it might be who's going to run a ton. And um, But those are guys, again, like you're not getting those guys too early. And Mahomes, what's going on with his receivers? Is he going to be the same that he was? I don't know. So I think there's a lot of risk with that. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, this actually transitions perfectly into the next question. And especially with the quarterbacks, there's been so many different trades and acquisitions this offseason. Everyone has new players on their team. I mean, you can go up and down the list. And this is my last question for you, Charles. This has been awesome. There were so many trades and offseason deals. You can list about 10 of them off the top of your head. I think you already mentioned Devontae Adams on the Raiders. But who are some players that are now on new squads this season who you think will produce really well with their new destinations on a, on a fantasy football aspect? I think AJ Brown, obviously, got I gotta say that I think he's the right fit for for Philadelphia, and I think he's gonna be really good this year in solid in fantasy, like consistent again. You know, when he doesn't have uh, Tannehill throwing him, I think um, I'm really intrigued by Robert Woods because he's coming back. Like he'll be the number one guy there, and I think he's getting undervalued on a run first team, and I understand why. Um, and I think that I don't know. I, I have my thoughts about. I have feelings about Allen Robinson in uh, Los Angeles. I don't know if he gets a ton of, of looks, but this is a guy who has never played with a really, really, really good quarterback, and now he has Stafford. So I think there's some consistent value as a sort of wide receiver three if you get him there. That, that could be good. Yeah, in terms of quarterbacks, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. And I think that the best offseason acquisition, it doesn't even have to be from a fantasy standpoint. I think Russell Wilson is really going to be much better than he was last year. I know we just mentioned that quarterbacks aren't the biggest deal in fantasy, but in terms of last year production to this year with the Seahawks, I did have him on my bench for the majority of the year. I always put Matt Stafford in front of him, and he did struggle last year. Obviously, he got injured, but him and all of his receivers, even though he had Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, it really wasn't a great year for him production-wise. So I think that Russell Wilson and the Broncos are going to have a big year this year. Um, I don't know what you think about that, but – that's someone that I immediately thought of. I got to run, but my, my thing is, I think Russell Wilson has a good year. Solid year, not a great year. Awesome. All right, Charles. Well, I know you got to run, but thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, it was really fun talking with you. Best of luck to you in your fantasy football endeavors this year. And to the audience, make sure you guys go check out his work on For the Win. And you can also follow him on Twitter as well for additional content. Thank you for joining, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Charles Curtis. Now we're going to get into a debate on whether or not the Dolphins and Tua Tagovailoa will win over eight and a half wins this season. That is their mark, eight and a half wins via all the sports books. The Miami Dolphins are one of the most intriguing teams to keep an eye on this NFL season. They've slowly but surely over the last few seasons gone from one of the bottom feeders of the NFL to one of the most exciting and high upside squads. So with that trend, the evolution of Tua Tagovailoa, a top 10 defense, and the additions of Tyree Kill and Chase Edmonds, they'll definitely get over eight games, right? Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be the case, and here's why. The Dolphins right off the bat have one of the toughest strength of schedules in their first few games of the year, and they could easily begin this year going 0-4. They play the Patriots, Ravens, Bills, and Beagles, all in their first four games. Talk about the worst first games you have to play. Those are four of the best teams in the AFC. Tua already has an immense amount of pressure weighing on his shoulders. Mike McDaniel comes in in the picture as well for the head coach, so that's another thing you could think about. He's one of the best offensive minds in the NFL. 
you got weapons around you and now it's like all right man here's all your toys this is what we gave you to play with if you're going to struggle with all this you clearly are not the guy for us so there's going to be a ton of pressure on his mind for him to perform and stay healthy but they play four of the best teams in the conference to start the year and that's not an easy thing to ask for a quarterback who already has a bunch of pressure on him in addition it's hard to adapt to everything in the season when you have all these new pieces to your offensive schemes you can practice all you want in training camp the show of the regular season is a different animal the accuracy of his balls they have to be there the deep balls have to be there the running game has to be there the o-line everything has to be on point everything has to be on key and that's hard to perfect when you play a number of elite defenses within your first four games the Patriots are a top 10 defense. The Bills are a number one defense. B- the Bengals are a decent defense. And the Ravens are also a top 10 defense. So it's not going to be an easy task. Let's take a look at the rest of their schedule after those first four games. So after week four, you have the Jets on the road. So I'm going to give them the win there. Week six, you play the Vikings at home. I'm going to give them the close win only because they're at home. But that is not going to be an easy game. Then the next week, you have the Steelers at home. That's a win. So now we have three and four. Lions on the road. I'm going to give them the slight edge there. So now you're four and four. So Lions on the road, barely winning that game. Then you play the Bears. So now you're five and four. Browns. This is before Deshaun Watson comes back. So I'm going to give them the win. So now they're six and four. Then you play the Texans. And now you're seven and four. So you have a seven game stretch from weeks five to 11, where you're playing the Jets, the Vikings, the Steelers, the Lions, the Bears, the Browns, and the Texans. Those are teams that are all subpar teams. So weeks five to 11 is going to be a very important slot for them. So if you want to give them all the wins in that category, now you're at seven and four. All right. So they're at week 12 now. They only need two more wins. They're definitely going to get it, right? Think again, because look at the rest of their schedule. To finish out their season, they play the 49ers, the Chargers, the Bills, the Packers, the Patriots, and then they end with the Jets. So weeks 12 through 16, that is a brutal way to finish your season. 49ers, they're not going to win that game. That's on the road too. Chargers, they're not going to win that game. Bills are not going to win that game. Packers are not going to win that game. And I don't think they're going to beat the Patriots away either. And then I think they will beat the Jets at home to finish out the year. So that is their eighth win. So now their final record, if you want to base everything I just said, their final record is 8-9. and nine. That schedule is actually a roller coaster of opponents. You start out brutal and then you end brutal. If they want to get over 8.5, you need to get one of the first four, and you can't slip up during weeks five through 11 where they have that win streak going against poor opponents. Not all of those games, weeks five through 11, are going to be gimme games. I think the Vikings game will be really hard, and I think the Lions game will be really hard as well, especially on the road at Ford Field. I believe they'll get eight wins, and it's going to be close, but even when they get to week five and they start out 0-4, the morale of that team is going to be extremely low and the pressure will be even more heavy than it already is on the whole team, not just on Tua. So they desperately need to get a win or two before week five. And listen, Tua is my guy, and I want him to succeed. I really, really do. But I just don't know if they can make all this work. You drafted him fifth overall, and when you have question marks about his throwing ability that are concerning to the point where you need to bring in a top five receiver, I don't know if that's going to fix everything. His deep ball, it was amazing in college, so I'm not sure why everything has collapsed on him during his time in the NFL. Injuries happen. I know his O-line was horrible. This is do-or-die time for Tua because the Dolphins are ready to take off. All right, guys, to finish up the show, we're going to talk about the final suspension agreement of Deshaun Watson. So Watson gets an 11-game suspension with a $5 million fine, which the NFL and the NFL Players Association agreed upon before taking everything to court. The thing that's disappointing is that the NFL came out and said initially when the six-game suspension was laid down by the NFLPA 
that they wanted the suspension to be somewhere around 12 games to a full year minimum. And they settled for 11 games. The NFL shouldn't have caved in this spot. The pressure was on them to make the right choice. And yes, they did get five more games out of it. But what's five games going to do in the end? Is that worth the horrible reputation that Deshaun Watson has placed on the NFL? I don't know how this guy is still able to play football this season. It actually kind of baffles me that he's able to play in the NFL, let alone still practice with the team. We saw the reception he got in Jacksonville in preseason, and that was honestly just the start of everything. You see the, the Browns fans' reactions to everything. They don't even like him. Do you really want to have those chants within your stadiums on the telecast every single game, even from your home fans? I would just suspend him indefinitely. I don't know why the NFL had to cave like that. If you do take it to court, you could have gotten a longer suspension and he wouldn't have played this season. I get that they wanted to figure something out and just lay it down and not take everything, you know, to court, make it all, you know, make it a lot more confusing about the situation with extra layers, but you have to do something right for once. And it was clear as day that this guy is guilty and he's a creep. It was an obvious suspension, an obvious choice to make. But anyways, he's going to play. He's going to play this season. There's nothing we can do about it. It's wrong and it's terrible, but he's playing. So the NFL, what's just really funny about this, everybody always says, you know, NFL is scripted, NFL is rigged. And I have to agree with that situation in this scenario because plays the Texans week 13 for his return game. Deshaun Watson plays against his former team, the game he gets back for the Cleveland Browns. Like, you literally cannot make this kind of stuff up. And as we know, the Texans were the ones who actually defended Watson during a lot of this and vouched for him, got him all the hotel rooms, got him all the masseuses, got him everything he wanted for all these sticky situations. It's a sick and twisted storyline, but, you know, this is the NFL. That's how sports are nowadays. That might be one of the highest rated and highest viewed games in the history of the NFL. Think about it. You have all this drama, surround, all this wrongdoing surrounding the Cleveland Browns and the Houston Texans, all led by Deshaun Watson's actions, and you're going to have everybody tuning into this game. Everybody is going to watch this asshole get sacked and verbally abused all game long. And not only that, but it's against his former team. You know, I think they definitely did that on purpose. You can't change my mind. They will profit so much money off of it. You know, drama in sports is a match made in heaven for revenue, especially when it's football. You know, you have that in the NBA too with the offseason trades. It's all people want to talk about. You know, the soap opera of the NBA, you have Kyrie Irving, you have Kevin Durant, all those situations that are going on right now. You have, you know, LeBron going to the to the heat back in the day. That's when it all started. A sad way to do it in this scenario. I think that's the direction that they're going with this. All right, guys, that's it for this episode of On The DL Podcast. Thanks again for tuning into the pod. We have great content coming up within the next few weeks with football coming back. So please stay tuned, and I'll see you guys next week.